it's a pleasure to speak with you uh, today here. Um, one reason, of course, is that it's 96 degrees out, and this is air-conditioned in here. Um, but a more important reason, a uh, more cogent region, I think, more to the point, is that uh, this is an economically significant and fairly unique uh, region within uh, the Fifth Federal Reserve District, which extends beyond the Commonwealth of Virginia, actually, and includes Maryland, most of West Virginia, um, and uh, the Carolinas and the District of Columbia. <clears throat> There's been, in this area, a very fertile mixture of technology and defense-related um, industries that have, over the years, given rise to a very strong and vibrant uh, agglomeration, is the term economists use, but pool of human capital uh, that I think can serve as a very powerful engine of growth uh, going forward. Prospects for economic growth in this area, uh, in, in the Northern Virginia region more broadly, I think, uh, look very bright in my view. Uh, my topic here today, though, um, will be the growth path uh, for the national economy, just where are we headed and what might that look like. And I'll start by saying um, that what I'd, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, what I'd like to do is start by saying that the U.S. economy is growing rapidly. Jobs are becoming more plentiful and inflation is low. Unfortunately, as much as I'd like to start by saying that, um, that the reality is quite different than that, as you all know. Unemployment is relatively high, uh, over 9%, the most recent reading. Inflation has risen of late, and economic growth has been decidedly mediocre. These facts are behind us. Nothing we can do about last month's data at this point. Um, the more important question is what's going to happen from here? What does a path to full recovery look like? So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Before I do, I need to remind you, this is my usual disclaimer, uh, that these remarks are my own, represent my views, and not necessarily the views of any other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. So let me begin with a bit of background about um, current economic conditions, just as a precursor to set up an understanding of where we might be headed. The Great Recession that we've just been through ended in June of 2009. And since then, uh, the rebound in economic activity, um, as I've said, has been uh, disappointing. Over the last uh, century or more, to put this in perspective, um, our economy has shown a remarkable tendency to revert to trend. Um, and to be more precise and, and, and clear about that, uh, real gross domestic product, we call it GDP, is, is our best measure of total production in the economy. That's fluctuated over the last more than 100 years around a simple trend line uh, that corresponds to growth at a constant, interest, a constant rate of compounding of 3%. So if you go back through, if you plot real GDP over going back to the 1870s when we have data on this, <clears throat> It's a, a const, it wiggles around this constant 3% growth line very closely. Now, in recessions, real GDP does fall below that trend line. Uh, but when you come out of the recession, real GDP has typically grown several percentage points faster than three, the 3% long-run trend rate, um, and that brings you back to the trend line. That's what makes those wiggles sort of disappear over time. This time, however... Real GDP has risen at two and three quarters percent at an annual rate over the last two years since the end of the recession. With that growth rate, we are not reducing excess 
productive capacity. Unemployment will remain high. We won't make up ground in the, the fight to get back to that long-run trend line that we stuck so closely to in the 20th century. So what accounts for this sluggish performance? Most obviously, housing construction. You all know the story here. It's severely depressed. We had a 10-year boom in housing that left us with too many houses given our population. New housing uh, construction fell by 79% during um, the recession before bottoming out in the spring of 2009. And since then, home construction has, has made virtually no contribution to economic growth. Following earlier recessions, uh, though, housing often contributed significantly to a growth in economic activity. So here's a noteworthy difference between this recovery and previous recoveries. For example, following the very steep recessions that ended in 1975 and the one that ended in 1982, residential investment added one and a half percentage points uh, to GDP growth. So if we simply had more of a positive contribution from home construction to growth, uh, we, we, the recovery would be looking noticeably better. While housing has played a significant role, consumer spending is an even more important factor in explaining uh, the weakness of this recovery. Consumer spending accounts for 70% or so of gross domestic product. In other words, of all the production on net that we do in the country, 70% of it gets delivered to consumers in the form of goods and services. That's a healthy uh, chunk of GDP, so healthy growth in that category is really vital to a, a strong recovery. Now, normally that's the case. At the end of a recession, consumers start seeing brighter times ahead, and they'll increase spending, even if incomes are temporarily depressed still from the recession. But in this recovery, real consumer spending has been relatively sluggish. It's only been rising at about a 2% annual rate. And that's lower than it typically expands, the rate it typically expands at in an in, uh, after other re uh, recessions we've been through. Now, this picture hasn't been improving uh, for consumer spending. Real consumer spending has risen only at a 1.1% annual rate over the last six months. So consumer spending has slowed down this year. Uh, from its previous pace. So if you look at the consumer economic situation, on average, recognizing there's a great deal of heterogeneity in our society, um, there are ample reasons for consumers to be relatively cautious in their spending plans. During the recession, during the, the contraction, household net worth, uh, familiar concept, uh, fell by over $15 trillion on net. Uh, during the downturn, and it hasn't fully recovered. It's recovered a bit. I'll talk about it a little more, but it hasn't fully recovered. An even more important reason for tepid consumer spending growth has been the condition of the labor market. The downturn in employment lasted for 25 straight months, where the total employment pie in the economy, the total number of jobs in the economy, was shrinking. During the, that time, the nation lost eight and a half million jobs. I'm sorry, eight and three quarter million jobs. We only began to add jobs on net in, our, in the U.S. in March of last year. And since then, we've only added one and three-quarter million jobs in the last 16 months that ended in June. That's the last month we have data for. At this slow pace, it's going to take more than five years uh, for employment to get back to the high point it hit in January of 2008. Now, I think the pace is going to pick up, as I'll say later, but uh, the growth we've seen so far is incredibly slow. 
Another facet of weak labor markets has been slowing growth in real wages. Um, in the last 12 months, hourly average earnings have risen by only 1.9 percent. So far, I've focused on the gloomiest sectors of the economy, housing and consumer spending. Uh, in fairness, these are partially counterbalanced uh, by some sectors that have been turning in above average performance. Business investment in equipment and software, for example, has increased by 25% since the end of the recession, adding 1.1 percentage points uh, to GDP growth. And exports of goods and services have increased 21% since the end of the recession, adding 2.4 percentage points to GDP growth. So for balance, it's necessary to keep these bright spots in mind. The inflation outlook is one aspect of the current situation that gets, I think, less attention than it deserves sometimes. Last year, inflation, as measured by the, uh, the price index for personal consumption expenditures, that's 70% of production of goods and services that gets delivered to consumers, uh, the price index for that stuff uh, increased at a modest 1.1% last year. But the prices of crude oil and many other commodities and foodstuffs, for example, started increasing sharply at the end of last year and early this year. And naturally, those found their way into consumer prices. Inflation has averaged over 4% at an annual rate for the first four months of this year. And noteworthy increase. Clearly, gasoline prices accounted for much of that inflation. Um, but other prices have accelerated as well. The, what we call the core price index uh, the one that strips out the volatile food and energy uh, sectors, has risen at a 2.3 percent annual rate year to date. And that's well above the, the rate of increase it showed last year uh, for the core index. So oil prices have stabilized of late, and that's reduced the overall inflation rate, just like increases in retail gasoline and other energy prices increased the overall inflation rate earlier this year. As a result, I, I I expect inflation to be uh, more moderate going forward, um, but the, the moderation in oil prices seems to have bottomed out. Uh, so that, moder that moderating effect on inflation seems to be temporary. I'm expecting inflation to average close to 2 percent uh, in the year ahead. As I noted earlier, the pace of recovery has been disappointing compared to historical experiences. In the early stages of past recoveries, particularly those following sharp downturns, the economy typically expanded at rates well above the long-run trend growth rate of 3% per year. GDP growth rates of 5 or 6% were not uncommon. Now, while that hasn't happened this time, most economic forecasters continue to expect growth to pick up in the coming year or two to rates above 3%. So we do start making progress back towards that trend line. This outlook is largely driven by U.S. historical data that I described to you before. It shows that for over a century, economic activity as measured by GDP has generally fluctuated within a relatively tight bound um, around that 3 percent growth line. Periods during which growth slows and the economy falls below trend are soon offset by subsequent periods of faster growth as the economy rises back towards trend. And the basic logic for that is pretty straightforward. Over time, the economy's capacity for producing goods and services expands with the growth in technology and technological innovation and uh, new ways of doing business, new ways of producing things, new goods, new capital goods, um, new stuff comes along. 
that rate of invention seems to generate about 3% on average over time. And even if the economy is set back for a while, that rate of invention keeps going. And maybe there's a delay in the extent to which those inventions get implemented. Uh, but ultimately, we come back to the fact that productive capacity has kept advancing while the economy has been contracting. In the current recovery, there are certainly reasons to expect, I think, uh, that this most recent slowdown, the one we've seen over the last six months or so, should be temporary. These are reflected in most forecasters' outlook uh, for the second half of this year and beyond. For instance, second quarter growth, um, just last quarter, was held down by supply chain disruptions uh, due in the auto industry and other industries uh, due to the, the, her, the, um, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Um, those problems have eased, um, and so uh, the rebound from uh, those disruptions should contribute positively to growth in the third quarter. In addition, business investment in equipment and software is likely to remain robust um, because technology, as I said, continues to advance across a very broad front, and it looks as if businesses continue to find opportunities to deploy new technologies in a way that improves um, their productivity, reduces their costs, but also provides new goods and services, new products, um, improves business processes, just does a better job for their consumers. Technological progress also plays an important role in our nation's exports, and these have made strong contributions to growth in our recovery, as I mentioned earlier. Many of our key exports are capital goods, and overseas growth is especially rapid in the emerging economies of the world, where they're in the process of equipping more and more of their workers with up-to-date capital goods that all of our workers have access to. Um, so the rapid growth of countries like China, India, and Brazil should be a positive support to U.S. export demand for many years ahead, I think. Even the weaker areas of the economy are likely to be less problematic going forward. The downturn in consumer spending growth uh, this spring was attributable in part to the elevation in retail energy prices since last year. And as I said, energy prices seems to have plateaued. As long as energy prices don't worsen significantly from here, consumer spending is likely to regain some momentum in the months ahead. Moreover, many households have been saving more and paying down debts, and a rising stock market has helped boost household wealth by over $10 trillion over the last two years since the, the end of the recession. Household balance sheets should thus provide some support, further support to household spending going forward. In my view, then, the expectation that the economy will soon conform to historical norms and grow fast enough to begin returning us to that 20th century trend line is still quite reasonable. Indeed, a broad array of private forecasters, as well as many of my colleagues on the FOMC, embody this view in their baseline forecasts. The central tendency, uh, sort of the middle grouping of the projections of FOMC uh, participants, um, as reported uh, after our June meeting, um, is for real GDP growth to rise to about 4% over the next two years. And that closely aligns with my own forecast. I was right in the middle of that bunch there. There is, however, a less promising alternative scenario that now seems plausible as well. Namely, that the economy is settling into a period of growth at roughly a trend rate of around 
uh, around the rate we've seen in the last two years without anytime soon a faster period of catch-up that we're accustomed to seeing after a recession. In effect, this would mean that the economy has suffered a permanent, or at least very long-lasting, one-time reduction in the level of economic activity relative to that 20th century trend line that I spoke of before. The economy would track a new trend line under this scenario, uh, parallel to, but distinctly lower than, the long-term trend line around which we previously fluctuated uh, in a tight band, as I said. And I don't think we can completely rule out uh, such an outcome, although I, have, I should say that at this point I view it as less likely than my baseline forecast uh, for gradually increasing growth rates. So there's no hard quantitative evidence um, to, to bolster this um, lower trend line hypothesis other than just the disappointing nature of the recovery so far and the fact that trend growth has been at 3% or below. Uh, some observers, though, have pointed out that changes in tax and regulatory policy, both actual and anticipated or, or feared, are capable of bringing about such a permanent effect on uh, output and consumption growth. If you work through a model where you capture some of those effects, you can see in qualitative terms that that's what would happen with um, a stark enough change in tax and regulatory policy. Some observers also emphasize significant uncertainty about such policy changes as another factor here, limiting hiring and investment. And here the intuition is uh, that uncertainty creates um, an extra willingness to just sit on the sidelines and see how things play out. Now the, the list of significant recent and, and prospective policy changes uh, should be familiar to an audience like this. It would include health care, financial reform bills of the last two years, as well as a, a fairly wholesale shift in stance on uh, environmental policy regulations um, that are important in many regions of our district, for example. And on the tax side, there, re there remains considerable uncertainty as to how long fiscal balance, how long-run fiscal balance will be achieved and the extent to which various marginal tax rates uh, might have to change as a result of, of the method that's chosen uh, to achieve long-run fiscal balance. On top of all that, uncertainty about federal expenditures has a direct dampening effect on businesses that supply and people who work for uh, the federal government. And it's obviously something that's especially cogent here in the Northern Virginia area. The high level of extended unemployment benefits is also cited by many observers as a factor dampening labor supply and restraining employment growth. Now, you know, I, I don't mention these as a, as a judgment on these policies. These may weigh, we may as a society judge that these are important things to do. I'm just talking about their impact on the potential path this recovery could take going forward. Now, as I said, quantitatively assessing these effects is virtually impossible, at least very difficult with the data and uh, the models and technology we have now. But I'll, I'll just tell you from our point of view that since early 2009, uh, we at the Richmond Fed have been hearing widespread 
anecdotal reports from our contacts around the Fifth Federal Reserve District about the chilling effect of prospective regulatory and tax changes. So we get a lot of anecdotal. And these are these are qualitative, not quantitative. It's difficult to figure out whether these are large enough to have macroeconomic effects. Uh, but at least those qualitative that qualitative evidence is suggestive. Many say that projecting financially, doing the financial projections for um, the financial implications of a given hiring or investment commitment is exceptionally difficult in the environment they're facing now um, for themselves. So there was a much publicized recent lecture by a Nobel Prize winning um, economist, Robert Lucas, uh, from the University of Chicago in which he speculated about whether the policy mix in the United States is moving closer to that of other developed economies, like Japan, but especially more uh, European, uh, many European countries. These economies generally have higher tax rates, more generous social safety nets, and more regulated, more highly regulated labor and goods markets than we've had in the United States traditionally. They also, if you look at the data, they employ less of their labor force, and they produce less output per capita than the U.S., although they tend to have roughly the same uh, average growth rate. And so if you think of it in terms of those long, that long-term line through the, in the 20th century I've been talking about, since the recovery, they, these economies all suffered in World War II, Japan and Europe, and so they all, their lines all, for GDP fell below ours. Um, but since World War II, measures of economic activity in those countries have caught up and converged to trend lines but the trends lines are, are they're parallel to ours because technological advance is sort of determined by science, essentially, and it kind of happens at the same rate everywhere, but below ours by 10 to 20 percent, reflecting, as I said, that they employ less of their labor force and they produce less output per capita. Two poss these two possible paths, then, I think essentially bracket the range of reasonably likely trajectories for the economy in the near and medium term over the next couple of years. The growth rate could rise to 4% over the next two years and allow us to gradually make up the ground lost in this recession, or growth could continue around two and three quarters percent, keeping the level of activity persistently below the 20th century trend line. At present, I don't feel we face a significant risk of growth much below that. Um, or of an outright contraction. On the other hand, there's a possibility of an unexpected acceleration of growth to more robust rates. This has happened in past recessions, after all. Um, though I view this as a good deal less likely than growth rates within the bound I, I mentioned of growth rates between moving to between two and three quarters and four percent. So, I work at the Federal Reserve. What does this imply for monetary policy? So I believe that which of these two paths um, we realize is relatively independent of the monetary policy choices we make. Professor's Luke, Professor Lucas's conjecture that the U.S. economy might not achieve more than 3% growth in coming quarters is equivalent to saying that the path of our economy's productive capacity, given current tax and regulatory policies, will be lower than we thought. And in that case, monetary policy Stimulus can do little to increase growth without just creating appreciable inflation. Even in the more encouraging scenario, though, I'd point out that factors that have held back growth this year, 
see, and seem likely to abate, as I said, are largely beyond the power of a central bank to offset. More broadly, it strikes me as unlikely now that the forces limiting the pace at which the U.S. growth uh, rate is recovering are amenable to monetary policy. As evidence, consider the difference between the economic outlook now and at this time last year. In the summer of 2010, growth was sluggish, but projected to rise gradually, and inflation was running at or below 1%. Now, growth is sluggish, but inflation is running at about 2%. The circumstantial evidence, then, suggests that the additional monetary policy stimu stimulus initiated last November raised inflation but did little to improve growth prospects. Last year, raising inflation was a desirable policy objective in the minds of many, um, but that's clearly not the case today. 1% inflation is very different than 2% inflation. Given current inflation trends, additional monetary stimulus at this juncture seems likely to raise inflation to undesirably high levels and do little to spur real growth. For many people, if not for most, real economic recovery uh, means an improvement in labor market conditions, um, a, a better improvement than we've seen so far. But that improvement ultimately depends on the pace at which the economy's production and consumption of goods and services grows. Production's fallen well below historical trends of the 20th century. When that happened in the past, recovery has brought us back to the old trend. Whether and when this will happen in this recovery is becoming increasingly hard to predict, but the stakes are becoming increasingly high as well as a result. While I remain cautiously optimistic that the path of our recovery will take us back to that historical trend one day, the possibility of persistently lagging behind our 20th century trend is a pointed reminder that changes in an array of seemingly microeconomic policies could have macroeconomic implications that are highly consequential. That concludes my prepared remarks. You've been a great audience. Thank you very much.